0: The journey of Christian maturity involves an intentional life that is an ordered and collaborative effort with God. Join us for a fall series, Formed, The Reshaping of a Life. You don't need to preach a sermon after that, right? Okay, it's your turn. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to really close them. On the screen, you heard words like alone, fear, control what is it that holds you back from the life that you know is inside of you you know it's in there but something consistently weighs you down and holds you back what is that thing now open your eyes in your program guide This thing right here, there's a little slip of paper. On the end of your rows, there's little cups of pencils. You're totally going to need a pencil during this sermon to write down either things that I say or things that God is saying directly to you. I deeply believe that God has something here for each one of us today, and you're not going to want to miss it. Did everyone see the blue windows that are in the back of the room? I want you to know that at the end of our worship service today... Actually, we're going to do singing at the end of the sermon instead of at the beginning like we normally do. And any time during the sermon that you can use one word to describe what it is that holds you back and holds you down, I want you to write it on this little piece of paper because we're going to use this later. Okay? I'm writing mine down right now because it's not hard. A few of you know my story. I've shared it a couple times up here. I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but the word um, that I wrote on my piece of paper is rejection. This is an important word in my life, because when, uh, when I was just a kid, my biological mother, uh, my, my biological father was never around. I have no idea who that guy is. Um, the only thing I know is he must have been immensely handsome, <laughs> okay? That's what I know. That's all I know. Um, my mom, you know, when I got to about the age of three and a half, she just couldn't hold her life together for herself. She definitely couldn't hold her life together to take care of me and my brother. The social worker pulled up on a Saturday afternoon and loaded our stuff up, and that was the last I saw of my birth mom. So the thing is, like, for me in my heart, like, written on a very deep part of my heart is the fact that I'm, I'm rejected. Um that I can't, I can't really trust anyone because everyone at some point will abandon me and disappoint me. This is like a story that I live with. I want you to know it's a burden and it's immensely heavy. It's immensely heavy. Um, the funny thing about it, though, is like my, um, my, my given name is Seth, and Seth means chosen. So it's like a really odd world that I live in because I was deeply rejected um, and then I was also chosen. When you're adopted, um, that means that someone had to choose you. And actually, for me, me and my brother met my uh, my adoptive parents. They took us for a test drive. They took me and my brother to the zoo. I didn't realize that we were like that we were getting tested out and tried on. But my parents took us for the day, and then they decided that they wanted us. So like, there's a story about my life that means I'm chosen. But there's another story for me that says that I'm rejected. And, like, I always have this choice day in and day out. Which of these people am I going to believe that I am? Now, I'm not the only one. You know, in, in the book of Galatians, Paul, like, goes on a whole sermon and talks about this. Because the most true thing about you, whether you've decided to follow Jesus or whether you're as far from God as you can imagine, there's one thing that's just a truthful fact about you, is that you are the son or the daughter of, Of the most powerful king in the universe. Now, I don't know if you know this, but like what kings do, it's totally unfair and it's lame. It's one of the reasons why I'm glad I live in America and not a lame country like England. Any podcasters in England, I'm sorry, I just called your country lame, right? Is that power gets handed off from one person to another simply based on birth? You know how that annoying is to me? I want someone to earn it. I want them to work hard for it. You know, like when the owner's kids get to take over the company, even though they're total losers, right, that grates against me. I want to see someone, like, work hard. But the king that we are sons and daughters of owns the kingdom that we can't work hard enough to inherit. And yet there's, like, a fairy tale in the Bible It says you're a son and a daughter of the king and that you have rights to inherit the kingdom. The father is going to give it to you and wants to give it to you. The problem is the father can't totally give it to you right now and the father can't totally give it to me right now. Do you want to know why? Okay, a couple things about that. You're not only an heir, With an inheritance, you're also a child. Do you know insurance companies have factored in the most expensive person in America to insure? Do you know who the most expensive person in America to insure is? A 16-year-old boy is the most expensive person to insure. Do you want to know why? Because a 16-year-old boy gets empowered with a car and has the power of a man while he's still a child. It's dangerous to give powerful things to children. It totally is. And you know, we have a little bit of an epidemic in our country where um, young people are growing up later and later. You know, like um, when you were nine years old, you did childish things that were cute, right? Nine-year-olds do childish things that are cute. When you're 19 and you still are acting like you're nine, that's not cute anymore. What's that? That's a little bit annoying, right? Right? But sometimes nowadays, 29-year-olds are acting like 9-year-olds. Thirty-nine-year-olds are acting like 9-year-olds. We have a challenge in this country. We don't want to grow up. The problem is the Father wants us to grow up because he wants us to be mature enough to handle the inheritance that he has for us. This last week, I went to a funeral. Um, it was actually a funeral of a young man that I met here Uh, He was in the youth group on my last run at Woodland when I was the youth pastor. Started out in the youth ministry and in the young adult ministry. Um, His name is Daniel Smith Rodriguez, and we had his memorial service here. Some of the most meaningful words I've heard for a long time. Um, His mom got up and said that um, she had done her best job to parent him, and that now that he had passed, that she was going to parent his memory. I haven't heard anyone say that before. That was moving to me person after person got up and talked about Daniel. Now, something you have to know about Daniel is the connection between Daniel's brain and his body didn't work like yours and mine did, which meant him he was physically awkward. He like He had a hard time walking. He had a hard time speaking. You know how ruthless our culture can be to those who have a hard time with those things, right? And so in a lot of ways, what I heard over and over again was that Daniel reminded people of a, chi- of a child. He was childlike, which meant that he laughed at almost anything. It meant that he was filled with joy in almost every situation. It meant that no matter how tough the circumstances he was in, he always was hopeful and optimistic. Now that's being childlike, which is real different than being childish, right? Right? I want you to know that God wants us to be childlike, but God does not imagine his followers to spend their lives being childish. God has more for us than that. God has designed us for life and life with abundance. There's a couple stories in the Bible that are are a quick reminder for me, With the things that I struggle with, with this word called rejection. That God, even though this is part of my story, that God wants me to grow up. But I have to be honest with you, there's some days it feels like an impossible task. Like the person that I feel like is inside of me that I want to be, you know, like last week Greg talked about that sculpture. The sculpture that's inside of there seems like it's never going to come out, like it's going to take a miracle. There's actually a couple stories in the Bible about amazing miracles. This week, um, I went to a, a fundraising breakfast for an organization called Hope International. One of our, um, one of our members here uh, is the regional director. So I went to this breakfast... Um, And I heard some amazingly incredible stories about things that God was doing through Christians around the world using like microfinance and discipleship. It's a pretty incredible organization. Let me just pause. If you're not financially contributing to the global poverty around the world at all, you should log on to Hope International's website and see if God might be calling you to step up in some way there. But they had a video that was a terrific video, a pastor from Africa. And he was telling the story about Elijah. It's one of my favorite stories. Elijah shows up at a widow's house. This widow is in tough circumstances. She doesn't have very much. She just has a little bit. But her need is really great. Her resources are really small. And Elijah gives her the instruction, says, start pouring the oil. Because the answer, the miracle that she needed, the answer wasn't in some resources that were outside of herself. The answer started when the prophet just asked her, what do you have in your hands? What do you have right here? Another great story about Jesus and his disciples. Um, After doing some ministry, they were pretty worn out. They were hungry and tired. Jesus promised he was going to take them on a little vacation. They were going to get away to a quiet place to be able to eat and relax and spend some time with him. Um... The disciples, even in all of their work, they longed for personal time with Jesus. The crowds had been fairly demanding of them, and they were going to get away. So as they were getting ready to go away, the problem is the crowds are smart You know, once you meet the needs of an audience, that group of people can figure it out. So Jesus and his disciples were going to go away to another spot. The crowd outsmarted them and beat them there. By the time they got there, the same people they were trying to get away from were there again, except this time, because of the journey, all these people were now hungry. So now they had to figure out what to do. The problem is the crowd of 5,000 or more was hungry, and so were the disciples. Disciples came to Jesus doing totally what I would do, which is like, hey, Jesus, all these people are hungry, but so are we. Send them away so that we can eat, right? And Jesus says, like, no, that's, that's not the way the kingdom works. He says, well, what do we have? And it's a pretty familiar story because there's some bread and some fish. I think the overall number doesn't matter a whole lot, right? Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says he, he prayed for that. And then what did he tell the disciples to do? He said, you go and feed them. And there was a miracle. The need of the 5,000 was met with what was in their hands because they took what was in their hands and it, they weren't the only character in the story. I want you to know if there's a giant distance in your mind between the person who you know is in there that wants to come out, that you have enough you have what you need to see transformation in your life. You do. Here's a promise that Jesus told us in John chapter 10. It's some of the words that I hold on to day in and day out with the struggle that I have of living the life that I really want. It doesn't start, start actually with Jesus. It starts with another character who's constantly trying to work against us. The thief approaches us with malicious intent. Looking to steal and to slaughter and to destroy. But Jesus says, I came to give life with joy and with abundance. Do you believe that Jesus has a life for you that's filled with joy and abundance? If you don't, I want you to know I believe that for you. I have a question for you. I want you to think about this just for a second. Is Jesus smart? When you think about Jesus of Nazareth, do you think that that Jesus is smart? If that Jesus showed up here today, and let's imagine it was take your Jesus to work day. And so Jesus went to work with you. Let's say you're an architect and you're going to sit down at the drafting table. Do you think that Jesus would have much to contribute to your work as an architect? Let's flip it. Maybe you're a heart surgeon, right? And now you have to take Jesus to heart surgery. And the first thing he has to do is like pull up the sleeves of his robe and scrub up and put a mask on. Do you imagine that Jesus would have much to contribute in helping you with heart surgery? I would say yes to both of those questions. I think sometimes when we think about Jesus, we can think about like a nebulous magician. Like, for instance, Jesus shows up at a wedding, right? And at the wedding, they're running out of wine. And we all know that's a problem at a wedding, right? He finds some water. Do people want to drink water at a wedding? No, we're not drinking water at this wedding. We want wine. So Jesus, they ask him, uh, hey, Jesus, can you do something about this? And he gets the water and he transforms the water into wine. How do you imagine that happening for Jesus? See, the thing is, I can project myself onto Jesus because I have no idea how to turn water into wine. Only thing that I would do under an immense amount of pressure is just say, like, God, please help me out here, right? And I would like try to wave my hand over it. And if something happened, I'd be like, well, that was God because I couldn't do it. You know, Jesus didn't have to do that because Jesus understands the chemical, molecular, structural difference between water and wine because Jesus is smart. He's the master of molecular structure. Did you know that? When Jesus healed a blind man, he got some mud and rubbed it in his eyes and the person couldn't see and then eventually could see. And it wasn't as if Jesus just kind of prayed and then held up his hands like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen here. Because even before anybody else did, Jesus knew about pupils and lenses and cornea and optical nerves and the connection to the brain because Jesus created the human body and understands it more completely than any doctor does. I want you to know that Jesus is incredibly competent at everything. If you're a teacher and you had a teach-off with Jesus, he would kill you, right? (laughs) If you're an investment banker, Jesus could take that money and outperform you every time. It totally doesn't matter what your job is. Jesus would be better at it than you are. And I'm not saying that to make you feel bad, I promise. I'm saying that so that we remember that Jesus is incredibly competent, And if we need help living our lives, there's not one sphere of your life that if Jesus gave you some direction on how to do it better, that your life wouldn't be better. Jesus can teach you about everything. Um, Now, one of the things that I do often in my job here is I I end up having to like make decisions, lots of them small ones, you know, like how many chairs should we put in a row or what should the curves be? How, How bright should the lights be or not be? And other decisions like that. And every day it's important for me that I remember that there has never been a better decision maker than Jesus. And if I get Jesus involved in my decision making, it will get better. One of the trickiest things that I have in my life, I'm sure you guys aren't like this, is managing relationships. That's hard for me. I'm going to tell you why in just a couple minutes. Has anyone managed relationships in his life ever better than Jesus did? There's not one sphere of your life that if you didn't become an apprentice to Jesus and have him teach you how to do it, that it wouldn't be better. Only problem is there's only one way that Jesus will agree to be your teacher. And I have bad news for you. It's really, really hard. Having Jesus be your teacher is really hard. And let me tell you the reason why it's hard for me. It's hard for me because I have a physical problem that the Bible would diagnose as having a stiff neck. I'm a stiff-necked man. That translates in English as stubborn and pig-headed. That's me. And no matter how much I try, the person that I know I'm capable of being and the person I actually am, there's a gap between those two things. And it's the hardest thing for me to admit to myself, especially in front of a bunch of people here or you know, via video across the world, I can't manage that gap and I can't close it. And I want you to know that you can't either. You don't have enough willpower to close that gap. You actually only have enough willpower to do one thing, which is decide that you want to and that you will let someone else help you with that. At the end of the day, the disciples didn't by willpower become followers of Jesus. By willpower, the only thing the disciples were capable of doing was starting. Your will is an amazingly powerful tool that can help you start something, but willpower can't fuel it. There's only one power in the universe that can change you as a person, and I want you to know that it's the power of God. Uh, one of the authors that I respect immensely about the category of like spiritual life and human development, he was pretty famous. Probably lots of you have heard of him. His name is Henry Nouwen. Towards the end of his life, he was struggling with his own spirituality, and he sort of got captivated by, um, by a group of people who were part of the circus. They were trapeze artists, and here's something uh, that he writes about his interactions there. He says, the Flying Rodleys are trapeze artists who perform in the German circus, And when the circus came to Germany a few years ago, my friends invited me and my father to see the show. I will never forget how enraptured I became when I first saw the Rodleys move through the air, flying and catching each other as elegant dancers. The next day I returned to the circus to see them again. I introduced myself to them as one of their great fans. They invited me to attend their practice sessions. They gave me free tickets, they asked me to dinner. And they suggested that I travel with them for a week through Germany. So, like, of course I said yes. I was hooked by them. I felt driven to see them perform, and I wanted to enter deeply into their world. One day I was sitting with Rodley. He was the leader of the troop. We were in his caravan, and he was talking about flying. Now, let me just tell you, there's two people required in a trapeze act, right? One person is the flyer. That's the person whose job is to let go and fly. That person typically is small and skinny. Makes a lot of sense, right? There's another person. If you're going to have a flyer, then you need to have a catcher. catcher. Right. So now he said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The audience might think that I am the great star of the trapeze act, but the real star is Joe. Joe is my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. How does it work? I asked him. What's the secret? And Rodley told me. The secret is that the flyer does nothing. The catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, my only job is to stretch out my arms, to open my hands, and to wait for him to catch me and pull me safely up. I don't have to do anything it's my job to hold out my hands, stretch out my arms, and let him catch me. The reason why I would never work in a trapeze act is because I could never let go of the bar. You know? But that's my problem in my life. The bar is just a symbol in my life. I'm convinced that if I hold on to it, I can control it. All the while, the thing that I'm holding on to, it's not lifting me up. It's an anchor that's taking me down. The first spirit of the spiritual disciplines of closing the gap between the person you are and the person that you want to be is recognizing that you can't do it in your own power. It's why AA is so powerful. If you want to stop drinking and you say, I'm going to stop drinking, you're never going to stop drinking. If you say, I'm powerless over this, I need someone else to help me with this, that's the first step. There's one farming tool that Jesus talked about in his teaching that helped clarify what does this look like being the flyer and the catcher. Jesus taught his disciples about a yoke. Now, a yoke is a farming tool where you take two animals and you put them together, and they work together on plowing up the ground. But there's something that's really important about a yoke. You don't put two equal partners in a yoke. You put one well-experienced animal, and then you put a young, stubborn animal A young, stiff-necked one. See, a yoke is great for breaking a stubborn and stiff neck. The reason I can tell you that is because it works for me. The only thing that breaks my stiff neck is when I'm willing to say, like, I have to let go of the bar. I can't control it. And I listened to Jesus' words when he said, Come to me if, if you're weary and worn out, if you're tired of fighting for it. He said, You can come to me. The yoke that I have for you, Jesus said, it fits you perfectly because it was designed for you. Have we ever seen a person live the human life better than Jesus did? Even the trapeze act of letting go of the bar makes me think of Jesus on the cross when Jesus is giving his last breath and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In every way, Jesus wants to be our teacher but at some point, you've got to let go of the bar. The disciples knew, and they made a conscious choice. They used their will to say, we are going to be with Jesus in order to learn from him so that we can do what it is that he did. I want you to know the hopeful message of Jesus is that Jesus can teach you, but you have to be yoked. But the truth is, we're all already yoked. It's not as if you're not yoked and you take Jesus and you choose the yoke. All you're doing is trading. For me, I've lived all my life yoked to rejection. And in every scenario, I'm looking, are people gonna disappoint me? I can't trust anyone. I have to look out for myself. You think that yoke isn't heavy? That yoke is hard. I don't know about you, but I want to be done with it. I want to be done. And I want to take the will that I have and I want to sincerely, with as much faith as I can muster, I want to let go of the bar and I want to open my hands and be able to trust that God has the care and the competence to catch me and that Jesus has the brilliance to teach me how to be a new person. Now, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up because we're going to finish with the time of singing. Um, I'm going to take this piece of paper and I'm going to roll it up in a little circle and I'm going to put it back uh, in, in the windows. There's some little chicken wire there that you can tuck this in. And then just next to that at the back, there's some tables that, um, where some people want to say a short prayer for you and give you a little reminder. If this is a decision that you want to make to take on the yoke of Jesus, They have a little prayer for you and a reminder that you can carry with you this week. That that yoke, it's perfectly designed for you. It's not ill-fitting, and it's easier than the yoke that you're in now. Let me say a short prayer for you. Would you stand to your feet? At any time during the worship service when you're ready to go back and do this, I want you to know that you can do it. In fact, I recommend that we do that during the singing time and not wait till the very end of the service because then there'll be giant lines and then you'll miss it, okay? Jesus, you promised us that if we would take our stiff necks and put it in the yoke, that you will teach us a new way. And Jesus, you can count me in. My prayer is that as we do that, we would recognize in deeper and deeper ways that you're competent to catch us and that you deeply, deeply care for us. In your name, amen.